You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 26. I think what brands are or where the opportunity lies is in thinking about how their customers are already communicating amongst themselves and then trying to find ways of inserting themselves or perhaps participating in those conversations in a way that's not too pushy. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. All right, here we go. Another show, another episode of The Local Maximum. It's good to be back here in New York. It's good to be broadcasting, you know, from my own uh, place again. Um, And yeah, uh, that was a really interesting trip to Ireland. Had a great time. But now I'm back and we've got a lot of interesting episodes coming up for you. A lot of interviews lined up. All right, a couple things before we get into today's interview, which you're going to want to hear. It's with Chris Messina, one of the highest level thinkers in terms of product design for our technological world. No matter where you fit in the industry, or in general, like most people in my audience are here to learn about trends and how to use your skills to build a more delightful world for profit, mostly, you're going to want to listen to these ideas. Um, Now, speaking of design, I got some feedback from last week's program on Twitter. Uh, The one thing that was uh, that's unfortunate is that it didn't get a lot of downloads, particularly as compared with the Facebook episodes. So, you know, I don't know. I was saying mostly the same things, but for some reason, ranting and raving about Facebook, everyone wants to do that. But Twitter, you know, people don't want to hear it as much for some reason. But uh, afterwards, I did put up a poll on Twitter and Twitter let me promote it, apparently. Uh, It just closed a few minutes ago. I was asking about the so-called shadow banning controversy that involves Twitter these days. This is different from the outright banning that we saw today of Alex Jones across, you know, a lot of platforms, for example. This is when some Republicans and conservatives noticed that they were coming up less in search results that's specifically like the, the autocomplete results that when you search their name, and they charge that Twitter had demoted their content quietly so that they can get away with it. Now, there's a lot of articles on this. Twitter denies it. No one has really gotten to the bottom of it. I felt like Twitter's denial in some instances was a little evasive because they were like, you know, removing you from autocomplete isn't shadow banning. And that's technically true. Shadow banning is, is much bigger than that. But then the question remains, you know, call it what you want, but did you remove these accounts from autocomplete? So a product lead named Kayvon Bakepore tweeted out information suggesting that it was happening, but for algorithmic reasons, you know, random glitches that are being fixed. Um, maybe not glitches, just, you know, the algorithm isn't good enough. So there's been a lot of suggestion and innuendo. In fact, no one, as far as I can see, has really laid out the possible truths as to what's going on. And as we know from Bayes' rule and Bayesian thinking, first you have to lay out your hypotheses before you can come to a conclusion. So that's what I did. And we're going to talk about, you know, maybe next time when I have Aaron on the program, we're going to talk about how to use Bayes' rule to come to a conclusion here. But that's what I did. And Twitter's poll has four options maximum. So I needed to shave it down to four. And they are as follows. A, the whole thing was imagined or made up by the Republicans. They either thought they were more important than they are, or they just willfully made it up in order to get some attention. And then the rest, like, you know, President Trump just tweeted out as fact. That's that's one hypothesis. Uh, B, just a random glitch. That's Twitter's official statement, I believe. C, 
QA bias. This is kind of my suggestion that it's accidental, but because it's against Republicans or conservatives, no one at Twitter knows about it or really cares about it until they get a complaint. But for different groups, they might be more proactive, let's say. And D is that it's a deliberate attempt at activism by Twitter employees to see if they can get away with it. Well, the results are in. 50% say the whole thing is imagined or made up. Only 8% say it's a random algorithm glitch. That's, uh, that's Twitter's official line. It only gets 8%. 23% say left-leaning QA bias. And 19% say that it's deliberate by a group of Twitter employees. Not a scientific poll, but and even if it was, it doesn't have anything to do with the truth. It's just what people think. But uh, all that's very interesting data. So we'll talk about this more hopefully next week if I can get Aaron to come on the program again for co-hosting. All right, so now I want to get into my conversation with Chris Messina. I've spoken before on this program about virtual friends and enemies. Sometimes products are built that make our lives better, hopefully most of the time. And sometimes people are just following trends or trying to make a quick buck, and they end up making our lives worse. So if you want a better life, it's important to get this stuff right. And Chris has a lot of deep insights in this area and where we're going in the near future. Chris is an ever-curious product designer and technologist. He invented the hashtag in a tweet back in 2007. And it's pretty funny if you read the tweet, which I'll link to. He was like, you know, how about the pound sign? You know, just an offhand idea, and boom, it happens. It's amazing how many ideas that are just kind of built into everyday products come around that way. I've experienced that um, for on, on like a smaller scale. Um, but it's not just the hashtag. Chris comes up with a lot of design concepts that are then folded into the industry. He studied communication and interaction design and has worked at Google and Uber and uh, was, as we'll see, an early uh, adopter of Foursquare. And because his ideas are picked up a lot, uh, that tells me that not only has he been recognized by many of the movers and shakers in tech, but his mind has a way of kind of looking at the current issues we face when it comes to interacting with our technology and sort of distilling it down to the core areas that we need to focus on. And so a couple years ago, he coined the term uh, conversational commerce, which includes all the chatbots that we know and love, you know, um, using natural language, having our machines use natural language. But he noticed that this idea has been taking kind of a wrong turn as of late. So we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about how companies can take more of a long-term view of interacting with their customers, uh, you know, to have better design, better worlds. So let's bring them on. All right, Chris, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Good to have you. Thanks, man. Happy to be here. Um, yeah, I was really, really happy when I saw that uh, you listened to our, our recording of your... We, we were responding to <laughs> <laughs> your podcast interview on uh, on machine yearning, which uh, you know that's that's what happens. You go on one podcast, and then all of a sudden the floodgates are open, mm. and you get another podcast. I don't know if you've experienced that before, but uh, well, actually, it was more strange than that. I mean, in some ways, I I don't even remember how I discovered that you guys were talking about me. It's one of those weird things where like you're listening to something, and then it's like you know you come up in conversation, and you're like, wait, they're they're talking about me. So, anyways, oh whoa, you wait. I thought that I. Because I probably tweeted that that you were in it, but it was it was it was very now. there was a randomness aspect to it where there was a surprise aspect. So yeah. to say that this happens frequently uh, would be an understatement, or perhaps yeah. an overstatement. An overstatement. Mm. That's happened to me once, where I was listening to a podcast and I was mentioned, and this like a few months ago, uh, where 
you know, it's something I'm not used to as since this podcast is only like uh, five months old. That's it. Oh, it's a baby. It's a baby podcast. It's a baby Uh, pod. Well, it it started in February, uh, February 6th, and I've been doing it once a week, um, every week since then. And I thought it was going to be very difficult to find content. I was like, okay, I got my first five to 10 episodes lined up. And then after that, I have no idea what else I can do. But you're in such a, a hot area, though. I mean, machine yeah. learning, AI, all this stuff. You work on this stuff day to day. Like, I think that inside view is actually super unique. Yeah, yeah. That's sort of where what I'm trying to go for. And I think um, it is kind of nice to step back. <laughs> the The inside view is is you know, more meaningful to me than you know, because I feel like, well, I'm inside here. I'm in this building working on my computer all day, and nobody is, you know, none of that knowledge and, and it's just not just me. It's it's a whole bunch of people here. And none of that knowledge is being like none of our point of view is not getting out there. And so that was one of the things. Actually, you know, it's funny. It's it's occurring to me now, you know, as as we're sitting here in Foursquare headquarters, um, you know, which is a service that I've used for over a decade. So I've, I've been a long time, you know, user first time caller kind of thing. Um, and a lot of the conversation that you guys were having in the previous episode about, um, you know, AI and sort of my thoughts on capitalism and the compatibility therein actually benefits a great deal from the type of contextual information that, you know, Foursquare and the Pilgrim platform offers. And I hadn't quite made that connection until now. And um, anyways, as we get into this, I think it will be interesting to sort of get a sense, you know, from you, uh, you know, sort of being on the inside programming on, you know, to the way out, how people can make more use of you know, brands, people, individuals, companies, et cetera, can make use of this contextual information that's starting to be uh, brought to, to bear on these questions of personalization and building these relationships over time. So uh, I, I guess I just appreciate kind of like the context for this conversation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of what it, that's sort of what our whole idea is about. Well, we're just providing one piece of information in terms of context that companies can use to help you know, figure out what their people want. And like, you know, like you said, uh, you know, you, you, you want, I think at the end of the machine learning podcast, you're talking about, um, you know, we imagine a future where these services know so much about us, where you receive something and you're like, oh my God, this is perfect. How did it know this? But in reality, when you want to take baby steps, I think, was it uh, was it Shane who said, I just want the yeah, hotel I just want to, to remember. remember my bed preference? Yeah, yeah, the bed preference. Yeah. Exactly, right. exactly. So, you know, if if someone will know just something as simple as where you are, or where you've been, well, that could be, um, you know, that could be very helpful. Um, they might not know exactly what you were searching for, but hey, it's a start. Um, so I wanted to start in, and I do want to get back to that whole conversation, mm-hmm. but I do want to start in with your kind of follow-up article that mm-hmm. you had a few weeks ago, because, you know, I want to be Yep. Completely up to date on all this. Uh, <laughs> Great. I don't know your thoughts here. So you wrote a Medium article, uh, and in the title, you said that you were wrong about conversational commerce. So I guess the question is, first for the audience, let's define conversational commerce. And then what were you saying about it a couple years ago? And you know, where do you stand now? What do you think you got right? And mm. you said you got something wrong. What do you think that was? Yeah, you know, I think um, there's... You know, now that I've been in the tech world for, um, you know, over a decade, uh, you just kind of see uh, the narratives kind of shake out of a series of events that have happened somewhat, you know, circumstantially or out of happenstance that kind of make sense in hindsight. And um, in in 2015, uh, I observed that there was a bunch of new services that were coming online that weren't 
first being built as apps, let's say for the iPhone, but they were built as SMS services. And of course, you know, there was a period of time where SMS would be a great way to deliver services in a low cost, uh, effective way to a broad audience. In fact, uh, you know, even Foursquare uh, as Dodgeball started out as an SMS based service, because that's what people had that's right. for using their mobile phones to publish check-ins. And Twitter also was an SMS based service. Were you on Dodgeball? Oh, I was definitely on Dodgeball. Yeah, because you said over a decade and I was uh-huh. like, ah, that's, yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, in fact, I am user number six eighteen on Foursquare. That's pretty good. So that's uh, it's it's I, I'm about double that on Twitter, eleven eighty six. I know Dennis is thirty two, and so wow. I'm, I always want to like, know who are the first thirty one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Or did I'd you like just start counting them. at thirty two? <laughs> <laughs> right. I should probably get tattoos, serial numbers of all the accounts that I have. Um, but I, regardless, like the point is, you know, in twenty fifteen, I was like, why are, are there these SMS services that are starting out? And what does it mean when uh, a company wants to make their uh, services available through this text-based interface? And what um, analogs or precedents, things that have come before, might define or inform the way in which people might, you know, create those services? So I was just kind of like observing and watching them and, um, you know, wrote a post in 2015 that was like, hey, I think there's this thing that I'm going to call conversational commerce. And I put out in the world, it was a very small post. Um, and mostly what I was looking at was um, Path Talk. So there was a service called Path, which is trying to be sort of a social network for 150 people. And then they acquired this company called Talk To, which allowed individuals to text message companies that weren't on uh, available via text message. Um, and essentially, people working for Talk To or Path Talk would then call up these companies and then send you a text message back. So it was like this very strange human in the middle um, relay service, um, anticipating that people were going to become more comfortable you know, just messaging with brands. And that was that was significant for me because I look at these platforms and these communication platforms and human behavior and I'm like, you know, how are we removing friction and making things easier and easier for people? And as Americans in particular have, uh, you know, grown to use text messaging, which wasn't the case a while ago, um, it became clear that people would find this actually pretty convenient and useful. But then the question is, well, how do businesses actually scale to meet that opportunity? So in 2016, as I was joining Uber to lead developer experience, I wrote a follow-up blog post uh, that was essentially looking at the evidence that I saw that had grown in the last year, uh, as well as what Messenger had just launched, Facebook Messenger had just launched with the integration of Uber um, into the conversational space. So essentially within a chat experience, you could request uh, a ride. um, And that was like this aha moment where suddenly you're having just your normal conversations with friends and the platforms that you're having those conversations in are augmented with uh, computing services that are anticipating your you know, desires and needs. You know, up until that point, Siri wasn't very useful, wasn't very great. Um, and it just seemed like this is going to be a new computing platform. So I wrote this long post. I was like, you know, 2016 is going to be like the year of conversational commerce. I'm like calling it now. Um, and then what happened over the course of that year was all these bot platforms launched. Sure. Uh, you know, and including ours. Yeah. Right. And so, right. So, so Mars bot, uh, came out and, you know, Alexa got really popular. Um, so essentially you had this new paradigm of conversational software being developed. Um, and, you know, as a result, I think there was a, a, a sort of rush in that direction because of all the advances in AI and machine learning and accessibility. So to make this very long preamble uh, sort of short, conversational commerce essentially is bringing computing services into the realm of conversation. And it's really about how brands, businesses, and services show up in a space, the conversational space, the, the messaging and voice space that was previously reserved for your friends and family. 
That's the that's the, the easiest way probably to describe it. And it has huge ramifications for businesses because consumers are now going to have very different expectations about how accessible brands should be and how they should be able to talk to them in terms that make sense to them and that use terms and, and vocabulary that are natural as opposed to what a brand or, or business wants to sort of use to describe what they offer. Do you see these brands as having... You know, do you feel like you're talking to a brand or it sounds like you feel like you're talking to a person or is it going to be somewhere in between? I think it really depends on on the brand of the service itself. And I think we're actually still in a very emergent moment uh, in time. You know, like, for example, the the conversations that I have with MarsBot, I would say MarsBot is very rudimentary conversational. You yeah. know, I might send it something and mostly it fails unless yeah. it's like, <laughs> like, hey, do you want me to tell you more about this? So and I can, can say yes. We can see it, but we, don't, we can't do a damn thing about it. <laughs> right, right. So I would say MarsBot is, is not the most, you know, conversational uh, service that's out there. Um, but it, it, it does communicate in a way that feels relatively on brand to, you know, the Foursquare or Swarm, you know, sort of family of brands. Yeah. Um, other brands, you know, whether it's like Sephora or Hertz or L'Oreal, um, I think are trying to find ways of communicating that fits their target audience and maybe emulates some of what their target audience might be engaged in. And uh, there's been some recent experiments, which I haven't looked too much into, um, especially on the messenger platform that are using like AR um, makeup experiences, which you can imagine, uh, I'm sure people who are customers of Sephora or L'Oreal would be engaging in um, on these platforms natively already. So I think what brands are or the opportunity lies is in thinking about how their customers are already communicating amongst themselves to their peer group and then trying to find ways of inserting themselves or perhaps not inserting themselves, perhaps participating in those conversations in a way that's not too pushy um, and might be accessible as, as though you just added someone to like a thread and now they're sort of chiming in and saying useful things. And then the messaging context or the voice context itself actually expands to support the behaviors that are already happening in there, right? So essentially in that way, software becomes more adaptive to the conversation that's occurring as opposed to giving you sort of, sort of a list of commands or a set of buttons that some designer thought were the most important things. So when you said you were wrong about something, let's fast forward to 2018. Mm-hmm. What what mm-hmm. was that? What was the, I, it sounded like, I mean, do, would you say that the uh, the title of the Medium article was a little bit overkill? Like, I mean, or, or, it didn't sound like you did a complete 180. When Correct. I the article. Okay. Uh, I mean, look, I'll, I'll put it in two ways. One, uh, I, I tend to be both a little bit cynical sometimes, but also a strange optimist about the future and also a little bit um, and sarcastic, I suppose. So, you know, in this era of uh, bombastic language, it felt like there was a need to sort of, you know, go back on this term, which ironically, conversational commerce is now being used to, you know, define um, conferences and events. And there was like um, a number of blog posts that have come out recently about how companies are offering conversational commerce as a service that they provide, you know, which kind of melts my brain a little bit. So you it know? got picked up by marketing departments around the world Correct. and it's gotten a little out of control. And so the way in which I felt I was wrong, uh, which is the point of this article, um, which which I think goes back to what I think is more of a philosophical or, or preferential idea for where technology should go, is that you know, conversational commerce isn't just about providing better customer service through bots and automated systems that essentially reduce the cost of your relationship with your customer. Conversational commerce to me is something that emerges from having useful and productive conversation loops where you're in dialogue with the people that you intend to serve. 
And so that allows your products to essentially, you know, be produced in an ongoing way and that are constantly adaptive and that are designed to be more like software as opposed to, you know, something that, you know, you kind of poop out at the end of like a design process and, you know, you get marketing to like figure out how to sell it. So the way in which I was wrong was to not go deep enough in describing a new type of brand and the way a new type of conversational brand should behave in this environment. And so I kind of left it up to the reader's imagination to fill in the blank. And I think I maybe was a little naive in imagining that people would just kind of get it and realize that they should become more user-centric, more focused on personalization, more focused on meeting users where they are, on being more inclusive, um, and a number of things that I think are relevant um, to the conversational software era. So I think it's a good time to ask then, um, mm. because you're talking about some uh, good and bad examples of conversational commerce, and then you talk about relationship design, and we'll bring that into a, a little bit. But let's just talk about conversational book commerce mm -hmm. uh, first. What Do you have an example of something like what not to do? Hmm. Uh, because it sounds like you are hmm. uh, reacting against hmm. something where hmm. people have taken the idea and have, <laughs> I don't know, done it wrong. Or, sure. Or, or didn't, uh, maybe, a lot of times people do this. They, they take a... a a technological idea, and then maybe they have the wrong idea about it, or they think they ruin it, it cheap, or, or, or they ruin it. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I think that there was a lot of, uh, let's say, hand wringing about um, the the supposed failure of bots, um, which I think has been both overstated and understated, depending on the context. Hmm. Um, I think that you know, bots are a convenient way of delivering service through conversational interfaces, um, and bots themselves are essentially automated scripts that run um, through uh, essentially language or, or respond to, to, to language prompts. Um, but the, the, the point to me about pointing out, you know, conversation as being the core context in which the software services are being delivered um, was to privilege, you know, language um, in all its forms to create a space in which you can negotiate meaning between two parties efficiently. I, I know that sounds very vague, but for example, there's no reason why if you are, are producing an automated service that you can't provide a user interface, a visual or graphical user interface um, in that context. And Messenger has done that and other platforms have offered um, visual interfaces that are more efficient. For example, picking a point on a map um, as opposed to necessarily typing in an address that you might not know, um, you know to, to figure out where you're going or something like that. Um, so I think there's been some cases where people have gone so far into the deep end of trying to create, you know, this massive phone tree um, of options for users to dive down in, you know, in a, in a bot um, that they're actually creating more friction than what the platform was supposed to, you know, be designed to do. Um, I think once you mentioned phone tree, you can <laughs> like, don't okay. do that. Right. I, so, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, yes, you want to map out your space. You want to map out your user problems. You want to map out user journeys. Um, and you want to uh, accommodate and account for those things. One of the things that Shane, Mac, and I have talked about is the idea of um, essentially, you know, if you create like a, a log of all the interactions and, and things that people might say to your, you know, messaging bot or system, um, how do you handle errors and how do you fail? You know, language is this amazingly adaptive innovation um, that 
many creatures have actually adopted as a way of, you know, clarifying a situation that they perceive and then sharing uh, their awareness of that situation with someone else. And we have a way of negotiating that meaning, like I was saying, where it's like, well, do you mean this? Oh, no, no, that's not what I mean. Oh, do you mean this? Oh, that's a little bit more like it. And you sort of go back and forth and play meaning ping pong until you arrive at uh, a shared understanding. That's actually what I think of as, as sort of like the conversational loop um, that brands need to somehow, you know, gear up for, which is, you know, going to require a lot of, you know, both ML and AI techniques, I think, to derive uh, both context from the user as well as past behavior and then to understand what it is that the user is currently trying to do. So in other words, if you set up a phone tree that a user has to go down every time following the same set of, you know, pathways to like get to the same or, or similar outcome, I think you're wasting a lot of their time and you're creating a lot of friction um, and frustration. And so that's, I think, when conversational commerce like really fails. Hmm. And that whole, you know, negotiation problem is interesting. It kind of reminds me of a problem we faced and we were thinking about in Marsbot and I've been thinking about elsewhere. Hmm. And I, I'm drawing a connection here. It's not exactly the same, but, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, I would, I, I would like to do in the future is, you know, have, if someone wants to object about a recommendation, you say, well, I don't want to go there because X, Y, and Z. And then you're not trying to learn the mm -hmm. person's entire mm -hmm. preference function. Mm -hmm. um, because actually, I think that's impossible. I yeah. think that's like a perfect information problem. But what you can do is you can start to learn okay, maybe some rules as to what they will and what they won't do, a little bit more about what the context is. And it's kind of like when you're talking to a friend. I don't know if you've ever been in a group of people trying to decide where to go, and it's kind of never. hard. I've never and done that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, there's a lot of back and forth. Sometime, uh, sometimes there are some frustrating people who, who I know. You know the number uh, of apps wonderful people that have been built otherwise. to solve this problem suggest this is a very common problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, the example that I gave on the podcast uh, before was, you know, in choosing an apartment. It's very hard to say, um, you know, oh, this is my, this is my preference function mm -hmm. in terms of an apartment. You just kind of have to say, I'm kind of leaning against this one, and then sometimes you don't really know why, but then you have to have a, a if you had, let's say, a really good agent or like a friend who's helping you, they can sort of... Uh, tease out well maybe it's just i i'm just not happy with the uh with the location well when your preference it's, function is like a bag of soup you know right. like you kind of wanted soup but what's in it is a bunch of different things and you're you know more happy with some bites than others yeah and so to connect that back to language i think language you know natural language and i i make this point a lot as opposed to machine language is so much more um so much more uh flexible yes. and and vague which could be a good thing you know uh and you know if we could figure out how to communicate that way in day-to-day -day life ultimately it could be a lot more helpful for people um and so we talk about you talked about relationship design as well i just mm -hmm. want to give you a chance to define that i think we touched on that yep. let's define that before we move on um and then also you know why the focus on the brand yeah. So uh, when I think of relationship design, you know, I'm also coming from uh, the discipline of kind of communication and interaction design. Like that's when I went to school for. Um, and that's the, the, you know, which, which entails computer interaction design, graphic design, typography, you know, the way things look, the way things work. Um, and so, you know, part like part of 
what I'm trying to do with defining conversational software, conversational design, relationship design is to expand, I think, the number of participants in the, uh, I guess, the discipline of building software. In other words, relationship design requires uh, a new set of skills that, at least in Silicon Valley, are somewhat rare to find, um, which require a lot of awareness of empathy and inclusion, accessibility, language, um, you know, improv, like um, a whole set of liberal arts stuff, uh, essentially, that feels like it's been left out for quite a while. And it's becoming a lot more relevant. Sounds like emotional intelligence. Uh, yeah, for sure. All this stuff. Exactly. Um, you know, that brands, well, brands, companies, organizations, I think have either minimized or have not really known how to either hire for or to, you know, bring into the context of, uh, of, of software, you know, design and development. So, I feel like I'm at the very, very early stages of, of this concept of relationship design, but uh, the, the the phrase and the terminology is very important because I don't want, um, you know, again these brands, these brands who are thinking about conversational commerce, which is why they're so important in in, in the the scope of this, because they're the ones who are going to adopt it because they see the dollar signs and they're going to go forward and hire for this and they're going to build software that they think is you know going to generate more commerce because they're doing conversations. What I actually want are a set of brands that are conversational and that are focused on building relationships and relationships in the way that I think of them are bilateral and uh, exhibit aspects and traits of mutuality. In other words, there are benefits for both the brand and the individual customer and consumer that go beyond a single interaction. Uh, We move from a world where things are just extractive, where it's like, how much can I make from this customer right in this moment to what I think Amazon does, which is looking at the lifetime value of, uh, of a relationship um, and they build to maintain that relationship over time. So, for example, you know, there's been occasions where Amazon has sent me, you know, like a toothbrush that I didn't need or something like that. And rather than me having to go through the process of sending back this like five dollar product, they'll just be like, oh, you just keep it. Like they see that the friction that it would cost, you know, to sort of cross that T and, and dot the I to get that product back to, you know please their bean counters, so to speak, um, actually would erode and minimize the, the, the future potential for me to spend more money with them. So they do all sorts of things that are both very subtle and very overt to continue to win my business and to win faith that they're going to continue to operate in ways that will benefit me over time. And that ultimately benefits Amazon. And I think we've seen that. So those companies that are able to take that long view and be very specific about the kind of and, and quality of the relationships that they want to build with their customers, I think are going to do well in the new age of conversational software, personalization, artificial intelligence, um, and, and a world in which you know, our computing environment surrounds us uh, completely. Do you think, I mean, when you have, when you talk about building a relationship with uh, someone, maybe a, a brand and a person, you kind of think about you need some feedback, like mm. how am I doing? Yes. But one of the most annoying things <sighs> is, you know, after, you know, how was my customer service today mm. on a scale of one to 10 or fill out all sorts of surveys. Um, it seems like that's almost the the worst thing they could do from a relationship perspective, but also the only way they can improve. So how do you how do you imagine that these companies are going to uh, get feedback in terms of, you know, mm. hey, how are these relationships going? Particularly when, you know, the spending uh, that they're ultimately trying to get happen uh, could be, you know, years in the future. Right. Well, and obviously a lot of what we're talking about has to do with, you know, marketing um, and 
building up kind of uh, listening abilities within an organization. And, uh, you know, I want to be very clear that I'm not um, like an expert in this space. There's a lot of people that spent a long time doing service design um, and thinking about, you know, different types of digital listening and, and customer survey surveys and, and, and things like that. Um, so I look at more like a mesh uh, of different inputs. You know, on the one hand, uh, when you're building services, what are the, the theses that you're, um, you know, sort of, experimenting with, uh, trying out what are the, the the success metrics, and is there a qualitative benefit to the way in which you've developed a service that has um, uh, an overall larger sort of net impact that's good for your customers than just kind of looking at, you know, let's say quarterly numbers. So it's trying to look a little bit further out into the future than what I, lot of, uh, I think a lot of businesses are set up for. Um, and then I think, you know, there are other ways of measuring sentiment through uh, just like the language that people use or the number of, you know, customer responses and feedback. Are you able to, for example, take the outliers, both in terms of the really positive user feedback and the really negative user feedback and learn from that? And so as opposed to doing explicit surveys where you're asking users constantly to rate the interaction, um, are you able to get a set of people to, you know, I think, I think you know, what, what Tony Shea did with Zappos earlier on where every, everyone who worked in any job within Zappos had to do customer service for some period of time, they were basically on rotation, gives everyone in the company a greater sense of both empathy and understanding of the user, customer, of the, of the user issues that may come up, which then leads, I think, to more interesting uh, solutions. Uh, and, and furthermore, like, I, I've spent a lot, of, a lot of time over the last couple of years actually looking into and reading up on just human relationships. Um, and, you know, there's a set of people in the world who have relationships and they actually do sort of periodic check-ins where they're like, you know, hey, how, how did this month go? Or like, are there, are there any things that we should like talk about? You know, is, were, are there things that I'm doing that are triggering you or vice versa? Um, you know, we don't quite have that vernacular or, or those set of words or terms for dealing with companies and brands, and yet we have very deep relationships with brands and companies. So the fact that you know we haven't yet architected how to have those conversations, to me, is part of the opportunity that enterprising brands that really want to be part of the future um, will we'll see and will take advantage of. Very interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, I do you have any example? So clearly you think this is um, one of the really important things to work on and if somebody's doing conversational commerce but they have bad relationship then <laughs> right. that's right is there anyone who I, I, I hate to ask you to like hey throw someone under the bus but is there any <laughs> example of, of something where you're like you don't have to actually say who it is sure is there any example where you're like okay that this is one of the canonical examples of you know uh, we have to work on this uh, um I'm trying to think of anybody who has, you know, treated me poorly. I mean, I think like what, uh, like, I don't even know that it's worth it because we're at such a low baseline uh, across the industry. Um, you know, like, like Shane said, like, even if, um, you know, a, a company that you book a hotel with, you know, remembers like your bed preference, like somehow that's like, you know, huge, right? Whereas like, right. you know, if your mother forgot your name, like, you'd be very confused and sort of, you know, very hurt by that. Um, so we have a very low baseline, I think, for brands. Some brands that seem to be doing well, again, I, I already mentioned Amazon. Um, yeah. You know, my bank, USAA, I think does a pretty good job of doing two things. One, they are constantly iterating and constantly improving their services. Um, USAA specifically is a bank that um, is for people who have been in the, the U.S. military uh, services. Um, but what they also do is they seem to do a pretty good job of, one, communicating in a language um, that their members 
you know, can understand, and that um, they really focus on problems that their members may have, which, of course, again, these are sort of military families, so they have very specific needs. Um, and they do a good job communicating the benefits that they're providing to their customers. Um, you know, not... Uh, I end up becoming a bit of a you know Amazon fanboy just because I, I look at a lot of the, thing, the things that they do. Um, well, their journey the last few years has been amazing. Yeah, well, so it's it's hard not to sort of look at that and be like, well, I wish that there were more companies that were sort of operating at that level. Um, and one of the things that they've done is that they send out these emails with uh, things that you can do with Alexa. So the software is constantly improving. It, you know, discovery is one of the big problems with Alexa. It's like, what can you do with it? Right. Um, and so they are proactively sort of sending out these little, you know, teaser emails to say, hey, hey, here's what's going on. Now, there's a lot of startups, I think, that don't do as good a job of, for example, now, you know, this is one of my weird quirks, but like, I love reading release notes uh, for apps. And so many companies fail to take advantage of using that space to explain to people what they're doing and how they're serving their interests and how they're doing this, you know, uh, especially since most apps are free, you know, they're constantly improving their software and they're not getting paid for it directly anyways. And users don't have the foggiest idea of how those apps are being improved. So the more concrete you can make the things that you're doing for people clear and you communicate them, that to me is in service of the relationship. So you know, just like, you know, if you send, you know, your, your dad like a, a card on Father's Day or you get a birthday card from someone, those are little gestures of maintaining a relationship um, that can become meaningful if they're done in a way that's consistent with the brand and consistent and derivative of the relationship that you have, um, you know, in place. So, you know, like another another example, and this is, uh, I, I, wrote, I wrote up um, about this in, well, actually, I think, so, so Spotify is probably, uh, I think, very interesting in how, one, they use a lot of machine learning to understand um, the playlists that people create. And then they kind of take those playlists and just like, you know, Foursquare, you know, giving me recommendations for where to go based on the tips that I leave or the check-ins that I do or the places where I go. Um, Spotify does the same, essentially, kind of service for music. But they also go above and beyond periodically where they will put together playlists of things that are specifically reflective of my own tastes and interests. So for example, a couple months ago, they put out something called the Summer Rewind. Um, you know, and then before that, they did my 2017 you know, top songs or whatever. So they, they periodically give you these little gifts based on the data that you've provided them as kind of a reward for continuing to you know, work with them. Uh, I know, you know this may be not as popular an example, but like Facebook you know, does you know, provide sort of memories from your feed or from your timeline that have come up um, as a way of kind of reminding you like, hey, we've had this relationship for a long time, like we remember. Um, and it's not perfect, but it goes to show that there is a kind of resonance or a recall um, and a persistence of memory that defines what I think is sort of developing as these software-based relationships. Yeah, and I think I do think a lot of people read those release notes. You kind of have to see them <laughs> as you go through, and I, companies are really are starting to realize they're getting this. better. Yeah, yeah, you see, and you know, uh, companies are hiring people that could build that could write good right? release notes. So they notes. have to be good copywriters, you know? right? Yes. Like this is my point. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so let's. I do have a question about Marsbot mm. here, but I, maybe I want to generalize that a little bit more because. You know, you mentioned that Alexa. We can talk about Marsbot. Yeah, Mars no, no, no. Bot. But I, I want to make it a more general question yeah, because it. of what you said. Because because you talked about how you know Alexa sends out information about mm. you know things it can do, mm. um, and I feel like you know a lot. Right, 2016, all of these chatbots. We got it up to a certain point. Mm. Um, Marsbot. It was just like you know we had to work on. Uh, 
different products in Foursquare. Well, nights but and weekends. Uh-huh. I'll get to uh, – uh, but actually that is, that is something I want to bring up because I might have a chance uh, mm. in the next, uh, you know, in yes, the next please. six months to maybe do a refresh – not something where I can like do a push to get zillions of users like I would like, <laughs> but well, it if could you do be. it well for a few, you might end up with with a zillion. Yeah, I hope so. I haven't, uh, you know, that's. I feel like I've built good products, but I haven't been able to drive, you know, that that mass adoption. I mean, well. Foursquare, I guess, a little bit, but Foursquare was already kind of yeah. getting there. Right? Well, Foursquare's had uh, a little bit more time, too. Right, right, right. Um, right, but Foursquare was, you know, it was put out in 2009, and then Dennis and then his small team really, really hustled, and then when I got here, we all really, really hustled for, like, a long time, mm. uh, whereas Marsbot, we just kind of built it, and it's uh, we maintain it, but it's it doesn't have the same startup hustle that... Uh, that, that I, I would say Marsbot has come out and it's it's relatively stable, uh, yeah. except for that time where it went down. Um, oh yeah, a few weeks ago. <laughs> uh, and it's it's you know been fairly consistent, but hasn't seemed to evolve too much. Yeah, no, it, it hasn't. <laughs> but uh, but we're gonna try. I mean, so also, so I'm trying to figure out what new. So if I were to build a new feature in that, it would be like it would be aspirational. It would mm-hmm. be like okay. What sorts of things do we think a product like this, you know, should have? And you know, we want to kind of show our company what maybe we can do in the future. We want to show maybe the industry what we can do in the future. So I'm trying to think of some ideas Mm. uh, to do on that front. So if you have any thoughts on whether uh, you know on whether we should do something in particular for Marsbot or Amazon or or Mm. Siri and all these things, is there something that you know, they're missing, or is there something that maybe they're getting that, that they should do more of that, that you think is, is working very well? Well, I mean, let's, let's talk specifically about Marsbot, because okay. I think one of, the, one of the things that I want to, I guess, also call out, you know, is that one of the, one of the great challenges of being where we are today in the evolution of, of conversational services is that, um, you know, general AI is a long way off. And, you know, for now, just like Google Duplex um, demonstrates, staying within a very specific domain actually, you know, shrinks the problem space and shrinks the context so that it's more likely that if you know what you're talking about already, you're more likely to be successful when a user asks you for something as opposed to trying to go very, very broad. Right. So when we think specifically about Marsbot, as I understand it, Marsbot is a kind of anticipatory service that will tell you things that you should go check out based on your past behavior and based on its kind of opt-in, like, do you like this? Like, it seems like you keep doing this thing. Would you like to do more of it? Or are you being forced, you know, uh, sort of against your will to, to do it, you know? Um, and so that simple mechanic allows you to, you know, shape a set of recommendations over time. Now, what Marsbot doesn't do which I think would be an interesting realm to move into, um, would be uh, two things. Uh, one, there's a service called uh, The Nudge. And what The Nudge does, uh, which I think it's a kind of clever service, but it's very much human curated at the moment, um, is it essentially provides you with itineraries uh, for, let's say, a weekend, right? So let's say there's a holiday coming up and you know you forgot that it's July 4th or something or I don't know what the next holiday is, but you know, you've got like some holidays coming up, Labor Day. So, okay, great. You got to do something for Labor Day. And so what Marsbot could do is like, Hey, you know, you did this last, uh, you know, Labor Day, here are some new ideas or here are some alternative ideas, or here's some stuff that, you know, tends not to be very popular over Labor Day, but you might want to consider doing, uh, that, you know, would be available to you. So I think stringing together, let's say three or four or five, um, things as an itinerary would be great, right? Sort of like automating the, 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 
list or the um, the trip list feature of Foursquare, right? So I want I want Marsbot to do that for me. The second thing that I wanted to do, and this maybe has more of a problem with having multiple users using Foursquare and, and having profiles for both, but I want to be able to like ping Marsbot and get like you know a recommendation for a date, like where should I go based on one or more people's preferences? Just like the problem you just said, right? Like, why should the humans have to figure out all the preferences? Because as you said, having a, a bag of soup and combining the soups together probably doesn't make a better soup. It's like, what are all the different you know, preferences, uh, taste profiles, where people have been, where they don't want to go, their neighborhoods? Foursquare has all this data. Marsbot should be able to marshal all that information and say, guys, here's three recommendations or here's one recommendation. Here's where you should go based on all of your past behavior, your preferences, uh, you know, your dietary restrictions, et cetera. Yeah, I like that group recommendation idea, but it comes up again and again. <laughs> of course it and does because it doesn't solve problems. When someone implements it, it's always like um, – yeah, we used all three of these people's uh, recommendations. And, and someone's like, nah, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's sort of like buying an apartment with three different people. Right. All of a yeah. sudden, it's way worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah no, but I, 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 I like the idea in general. And I think, um, well, anything you just said, we'll be listening to. Sit down and try to figure <laughs> this out. So, uh, so no, this, no matter when it is. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Now, I do want to... I, um, kind of follow up on the discussion that I had with my co-host Aaron uh, a few um, uh, a few weeks ago um, because we were talking about sort of a restructuring of the economy <laughs> yes. with the advent of AI is that is that how you would put it because so here's the little bit, bit of background on that like we mm. had uh, a show uh, maybe a few weeks before that where I was just kind of ripping this article in the Washington Post. It was this op-ed, right, right, and the guy was right. like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, the, the market isn't going to work anymore. Mm. we, we got to go to like communism now <laughs> because of AI. And I was just like, oh, this is ridiculous. And so I, I said that. Uh, we talked about it in the podcast, and it became the most uh, mm. downloaded show. <laughs> of course. So I'm just looking for, uh, so I was just looking for, for similarities. Um, but then as I got into, you know, your discussion about capital, capitalism and AI, I'm like, oh, this is a, a sort of a totally different, mm. um, this is a totally different approach. Mm. So maybe, can you tell me what your current thinking mm. is that an AI, like where, where are, like, how would you describe this in terms of, you know, um, we're talking about sort of the the restructuring. How would you describe it um, in, in your own words? Yeah, you know, I think um, if I recall correctly, you know, there's sort of a meme lately around the future of work and employment and how automation is going to replace all these jobs and there's going to be this massive disruption. Sure. And big, big theme yeah, comes it's, up it's a lot just, in the yeah. show. I mean, it's, it's easy to sort of like, you know, use that hyperbole to, you know, scare a lot of people and, and fear, you know, causes people to pay attention. Um, but if you take a, a slightly different, I think, approach, um, there, there, I think there is an, a useful or interesting question, um, which is to look at um, how economics will play out in a world where you have a lot more or much more efficient markets. You have abundance because we've actually become pretty good at producing things at scale. It's just very hard to distribute them, but we're getting way better at that. If you look at all the logistics, you know, drone delivery, uh, autonomous vehicle delivery, all those things are going to are going to happen in the next several years. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. 
there's a lot of work being done to do anticipatory um, sort of you know shopping and deployment of goods. So uh, on Prime Day, which I think was probably a you know continues to be a big test for Amazon to try out different logistical solutions. You know, I ordered. Uh, a second gen uh, Echo device, just you know, for the sake of it, and you know, it arrived like the next day, you know, like eight hours later or something in San Francisco. Which, if I think back ten years ago, would almost be like unheard of. You'd wait, you know, like a week. It would cost you twenty bucks in shipping, like blah blah blah. So we've gotten much better about moving things around very quickly. So the capillary, you know, system of uh, capitalism, uh, I think, has been pretty well tuned. So once you are living in a computing environment where you can just state your intention, the thing that you want. It shows up for you very quickly. Um, yeah, and Maybe sometimes even before you state it. Correct, right, exactly. And, and I think this was uh, mentioned in another podcast where you know, Amazon's just gonna send you a box of stuff that it knows that you typically buy and that you need. It knows that you're running out of toilet paper, for example. And it doesn't even need to like have sensors in your house, though maybe it will. It just needs to basically know the last time you ordered toilet paper, the rough rate of depletion, and uh, you know, it'll send you out another box. And you know, the stuff you don't need, you just send back. And you know, it just sort of goes that way, right? That's a good example for me because I, you know, sometimes I order it on Amazon. But sometimes I just buy it from downstairs. But if it just starts appearing <laughs> right. there and they charge my account, I'll be like, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, the, the I think, okay, let me, let me put this out there and then, and then we'll see where this goes. Yeah. Like friction in the marketplace, you know, is, is anything which sort of uh, requires energy, which could be thought energy or, uh, you know, caloric energy um, to, to make something happen, right? Sort of force of will, um, you know, getting over inertia, to, to move things forward. And so the thought of desire to have a thing or to need a thing uh, is, a, is a sort of friction. So if the market moves to a completely anticipatory model where it just disseminates goods because it has them and you're paying a membership fee to Amazon Prime for soon $120 or whatever it is, right? How does that change the way that we build products? What if instead of backing products on Kickstarter, which is a demand-based system, products are just sort of funded and they're just tried out and they're sent out to 100,000 users because the cost of replication is so cheap through 3D printing or, or whatever, or maybe it's built in VR space or something, which is nearly free. Um, and essentially people can try these things out and see if they like them. And if they do, then essentially, then those products get put into like mainstream production and then are sort of deployed around the world or whatever it is. It just, it's unclear to me that the mechanisms of conventional and traditional capitalism um, will work the same without some kind of readjustment or retooling to this world of, of abundance. So you're saying that, um, so I see what you're saying that in many cases, particularly like these mass market items, you wouldn't necessarily care what, what the brand is. Yeah. I mean the brand. So yeah. And I think this is also uh, thank you for bringing that up. The purpose of brands in the future also changes because brands used to sort of be useful as a way of encapsulating, let's say a set of, um, properties of a, of a product, you know, whether Coca-Cola, you know, is Coca-Cola genuine, for example, like there was a lot of knockoffs, there's a lot of stuff that was made, um, you know, before trademark mark law was effective and, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, you know, in a future world, what is the purpose of a brand? Is it about, you know, a feeling that it gives you? Is it about, you know, allegiance to a certain set of ideals or values? Is it about fashion and representing your, your taste? Um, you know, or is it about, you know, you go to the store, if, you know, stores exist in the same conventional way, and you're looking through an aisle of, let's say, suntan lotions, and you're trying to pick from a bunch of non-differentiated products. 
And those products are all made by, yes, in, in theory, different companies, um, but increasingly are sourced from the same supply chain. So, you know what I mean? Like the brands have been created sort of on top as another layer to create the perception of differentiation when, in fact, a lot of these things are more or less the same. So let's uh, – I want to move away from the, the mass market stuff because, okay, let's say I'm living in this future so that's world. So the, that's the question, right? Right, right. Yeah. Let's say I'm living in this future world and I'm like, okay, I want to produce a product, but – and it's the same in, <laughs> it's the same at the present. Like I don't, I don't think uh, – I, I don't think like a, a mass pro- – it's just way too – uh, efficient. Mm-hmm. I don't want to compete with with some of these big brands. So I want to create a, a niche product that um, I want to sell to only a few people. Mm. Like, how do you think that would be significantly di- like how how would that be different than it is now? Like, I, I feel like I would still have to kind of get myself out there, my brand out there, to say, hey, you know, you're super efficient. Amazon is telling you this. I got something different. It's it's new. Give me a chance. You know, how would you So do that? I think in that case, um, well, I don't know how the retooling of economic distribution is going to go. You know, there's been a lot of talk about like universal basic income, but um, I think that idea probably needs a, a several revs to kind of get to the point where it does what it's supposed to do, which should be to allow for um, actually very precise personalization and customization. So what you just described, right? I mean, uh, like I end up sort of stuck on a toilet paper example, but like I don't think a lot of personalization or customization of toilet paper is going to be that necessary a little bit but Uh, but, well but actually (laughs) i think a better example is like you know spotify and soundcloud where you can have really interesting remixes of content of culture of songs of experiences um or you can look at like what airbnb is doing where they're having very local experiences that are being put on the platform and are being promoted and shared and people are sort of showing up with their creativity um, I think that that actually is the world in which we want to create more competition and more opportunity for people to say, here is some little interesting, you know, tweak or hack or differentiation, uh, differentiation on a core mainstream idea. And here's how I made it my own. And here's how um, I want to share this with people. Or here's an experience that I want to give to people. Um, that's, you know, for example, um, some friends of mine run this thing in San Francisco called Studio Table, and they bring together a bunch of people to have these really amazing, you know, dinners. Um, and it's all about the experience design, and they work with brands to create that experience. And so, you know, while you might be able to get, for example, um, you know, massage oil or whatever, and that's a you know general product area, um, they work with brands that do a very specific kind of you know local tweak on the on those products and then they put it in the context of this dinner and then they bring some music together and and it's a whole thing so the more that you can give those experiences to people and sort of provide access to that more broadly um, I think that becomes interesting and then hopefully that also reinforces like local cultures and the desire and the will to explore and to experiment and to to try things out so it's not that I see everything becoming so homogenized and normalized that like the market's you know a million percent efficient and it's you know just boring all the time it's more like what are the macro trends in the way in which we distribute products that has, have, have not been possible in the past? How does that lower the cost of those things so that you can at least have the basics met? And then how does that create sort of a layer on top where there's you know, massive variation and interestingness um, being delivered by the market because suddenly we have more time to focus on those types of things, those types of creative expressions? I think that's a great thing to think about, and I think I think that's I think I, I, I'm about ready to leave it at that. We're almost great. out of time, but let's um, just to finish up. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add on that? And then also, this is the part where you can plug anything mm. you want: website, other mm. medium. What? 
Um, you know, I guess like there's two two last thoughts that I think about, and, and I really appreciate the conversation and the opportunity to come on. Um, you know, there's so much richness here that I hope people just dive into these these thoughts and share their own because I, you know, I'm still very much figuring these things out. Um, but, you know, one thing I would invite people to check out the machine yearning podcast. I think, um, what yeah. Shane Mack is doing, uh, you know, over there is really cool. He is blending together things like, you know, empathy and, and conversational UI design and accessibility, um, in a way that's, that's pretty novel. Um, and then, you know, I've also been looking a lot at, uh, digital avatars and digital agents. Um, there's one called Michaela. Um, there's another one called Shudu. And so what I'm very interested in, in, sort of moving beyond just conversational design are again, conversational brands and digital agents represented through these systems in a way in which people are starting to almost not even care to notice the distinction between what is human and what is not human. Um, and that's going to be a trend that I, at least, well, I'm watching very closely now and that plays into this, I think very closely. All right. And any last, um, so I'll definitely put the, uh, uh, machine yearning link on the show notes page. Anything else before we head out? No, but, you know, like, I would love to hear people's feedback. Um, they can send me, you know, a message on, on Twitter. Um, it's just Chris Messina or Chris Messina at Gmail um, if you want to send me uh, your thoughts on how I'm right, wrong, or um, if you've got better ways of improving my ideas. All right. I'll send that out to uh, my listeners, and, uh, and I think you'll hear something. So thanks, Chris. Thanks a lot for being on the program. Thanks, Max. All right. It's Monday night now that I finish editing this, August 6, 2018. Finally, Better Call Saul is back on TV. So I always just watch it every every week. Uh, but that was before before I started doing this podcast. So we're just starting season four. I've been really missing that and Game of Thrones. So it's good to have a TV show to look forward to. Monday nights, that's my podcast editing night. So no, oh, well, I think I do both. That reminds me of a podcast that I like that goes along with the show. It's called Better Talk Saul. It's hosted by Dylan Shuck. I always listen to it the next day. If you get enough, uh, if you can't get enough Better Call Saul, then you actually have a podcast discussing it afterwards, which is pretty cool. Uh, there are several TV shows that have this. So I think I can learn a few things about how to make this podcast better by looking at some of the TV podcasts like Better Talk Saul. Anyway, next week, if the schedules line up right, I want to talk to Aaron, not just to follow up on the Twitter stuff from a Bayesian perspective, which we'll do, uh, but also to dig into the Nassim Taleb Bayesian controversy. He's reignited the debate, and I am going to stick my hand into that hot stove. You bet. Next time on The Local Maximum, have a great week. That's the show. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you want to keep up, remember to follow The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at MaxClock. Have a great week. Feel the power. Don't care what you say, you're gonna say.